Hi, everybody. My name is Christian Cisan, and I'd like to welcome you to the June edition of the Third Fridays podcast. Now, uh, if you're watching, uh, it's just me. Actually, if you're listening too, it's just me. You're not going to hear some other voice. Uh, I think we had to make a change because the last two episodes had Greg Lois on them, and uh, I'm not sure if everybody liked that. But we're back with Old Faithful. Uh, what's changed? Well, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I got married, and um, so I, I, bad luck to everyone out there that's been pining for me. Uh, bad luck to my wife because she just hates me the same amount that she did last month. Uh, probably going to get worse because today is the first day that I forgot to put the ring on. So uh, naked finger here. Sorry. Uh, she's probably not going to listen. Anyway, we have a great, great show today because it's the 201 level of the Going and Coming Defense webinar. That's part of the Monday webinar series, right? So if we want to remind everyone the webinar series that we put on every third Monday has to do with your basic introduction to the issue, right? So uh, going and coming, coming and going uh, simply means that it's an exception uh, or it's, it's a rule that states that if you are in transit from home to employment or from employment to home, then it's not going to be deemed compensable, right? So uh, how did this come about? It's actually a, a almost 20 to 30-year-old precedent, uh, it first issued by the Court of Appeals, where it disagreed with the appellate division, right? So it was a, a New York Power Authority case where uh, an employee was leaving work, clocked out, went to a dry cleaners and had in uniforms of his coworkers laundered uh, for uh, subsequent shifts. And during that process, uh, an accident occurred with injuries uh, being sustained. The appellate division just applied the going and coming rule to state that the case is not compensable. But the Court of Appeals actually reversed the appellate division, reinstating the board's decision to find that this was a special errand. So what is a special errand? Well, essentially is uh, when you're traveling between work and home, if the employer both encouraged the errand and derived a benefit from it, then it's going to be an exception to the rule, and it will be deemed compensable, right? So that's a, a, a very old precedent, and we're going to talk about uh, the application to today, 2019, um, 2019, our 2019 world as it relates to that uh, issue, right? So a case just came down from the appellate division uh, in April this year, April 25th to be exact, and it basically held the precedent in place. So no big change, but really what we're going to be talking about is the facts within those case, uh, within that case, and how it can be applied to how we defend cases today, right? We're going to talk about procedural issues, and we're going to talk about uh, what we're doing to defend from day one, right? So counter one, uh, de defend from day one, counter two. Uh, we're going to talk about how we do that to really reinstate and enforce uh, the proper defenses to make your claims disallowed, right? So in 2019, this New York Transit Authority case came out where a claimant was assaulted after he clocked out of work uh, and took the subway home, right? So the, the appellate division held that he was not performing any services for the employer on his commute home. And the claimant's position was that he was still an employee and holding himself out because he was still wearing his uniform and he was taking 
the most efficient transportation from home, from work to home, right? And the appellate division reversed that case uh, or reversed that uh, uh, argument from the claimant, basically saying that there was no evidence that the claimant was required to use the trains to commute to work, and the employer did not benefit from his mode of transportation, right? So contrast that with the New York Power Authority case in the 1990s where there is actual benefit derived by the employer, right? Clean uniforms uh, to its other employees and an actual location that is not the claimant's work or home, right? So it's almost a new location in which you could be servicing the uh, needs of the employer, right? Here, we have a simple commute back from work to home and something that occurred in that midst, right? And so the appellate division really leaned on the fact that there was six train stops in between the work location and the home location, and there was no nexus between the employment and the accident, right? So it concludes, of course, that the assault is unfortunate, but it's just not compensable under the law. So let's t let take a look at those two cases and see what we need to do if that happened today, right? So... The accident happens today, you give us a call and you say, this is, these are the facts, what do we need to do to preserve the defense? Okay, the first thing we need to do is we need to report the accident to the board, right? So if it happened today, you know that ha it happened, notice is not gonna be an issue, so you're going to have to report it within the 1810 rule, right? So 18 days from today, you would have to report that to the board. You're not deciding on compensability, and I know that's a difficult thing to navigate reporting and compensability, but the reporting aspect is uh, in compliance with the 1810 rule. Now, after you report it, you're going to wait for that case to be indexed, but since we're defending from day one, counter three, we're going to start talking about who can testify, right? So if we know that to get out of the special errand exception that we have to determine whether the employer derived a benefit from it, then we have to actually produce someone that says that the employer does not derive a benefit from it. Otherwise, we are left at the mercy of the claimant's testimony to explain in this convoluted way why taking a train home or driving home actually benefits the employer, right? So the testimony of the person that's involved has to be secured from day one because that is the person that we want to talk to and prepare for this process, right? The expedited calendar will actually have it so that there is going to be a trial within 60 days after the receipt of the board of both medical evidence finding a causally related injury and an electronic denial filed by the carrier. So knowing that timeline is an important step to securing the witness preparation and eventual testimony. Right? So the person that's going to testify is going to be someone with knowledge of the claimant's uh, route. Maybe there's a coworker that also takes that route, or maybe there's a supervisor that knows of the route. Uh, any, any HR person that can talk about whether what policies are in place to have the employee or the employees take this route and whether that actually benefits is a, an important thing. The second aspect of the special errand rule goes to whether the employer encourages that uh, route or encourages that commute. So you, you would want at best one employee to do both, 
right? One witness for the defense that's going to testify to the fact that we didn't encourage this uh, activity and that we also don't derive a benefit from it. And it's unclear exactly whether the employer had this because the appellate division actually relied on the claimant's testimony himself. So the claimant's testimony didn't rise to the level, but that we can't prepare for that. And that's one of the most important parts about this case is that we cannot depend on the claimant testifying to facts that will help our defense, right? If the claimant is up there by him or herself, then it makes it a lot easier for a judge to rule on credibility because there's no defense witness, right? So now you've secured your witness, your attorneys have prepared this person for testimony, and what are they going to do? They're going to preserve the identity of that person on a PH 16.2. That's the pre-hearing conference statement that must be filed 10 days prior to the pre-hearing conference. Little caveat in 2019 is the virtual hearings trend, right? Because of virtual hearings and the ease at, as, at which each party can attend a hearing now, hearing notices are coming out much faster. The fastest I've seen is actually about two weeks where the notice will be dated uh, dated essentially uh, the time it's viewable in e-case or maybe a day or two before or after with the actual hearing date approximately two weeks after. So if we take that kind of timeline into consideration and you haven't filed the PH 16.2, that could mean about four days before your attorneys are preparing the supplemental brief and the, the pleadings required to preserve your documents and your evidence, right? So we know here at Lois that our motto is to do it on the same day, right? Once you tell us that it's a denial, we're going to file that pre-hearing conference statement as soon as possible, giving us an opportunity to amend it in the time if more information becomes necessary. So what we learned from this case, among other things, is that the claimant did help the appellate division find in favor of the employer because the employer's testimony is not truly cited in this case. But do we rely on that all the time? No. We have to prepare for the fact that the claimant will actually provide facts not in evidence, facts adverse to our position, and facts that are just flat out untrue, right? So we have to make sure that the employer's position is right. Then when we go to the pre-hearing conference, we're going to provide an offer of proof if asked, right? Uh, what I'm seeing as a trend in pre-hearing conferences is for judges to challenge defense attorneys as to what the nature of the denial is. Now an offer of proof ranges from judge to judge. It ranges from hearing point to hearing point, downstate to upstate. But we always want to make sure that we're, we are knowledgeable of the facts of our case so that when that judge comes to us and asks about our case, we're able to provide a reasoned offer of proof. It's not always necessary because the pleadings themselves speak very clearly as to what the nature of the issue is. The electronic denial will also do the same thing based on the denial codes that we provide to you when advice is sought. But in a last minute scenario where we don't have those situations, that is where the offer of proof at the pre-hearing conference will allow you to state that there is enough evidence to go to trial on the compensability of the matter. Okay, so then we go to the uh, fact-based trial, right? Medical witnesses may testify, but if your defense is only going to be coming and going, then it's going to be a fact-based initiative. We're going to elicit testimony from witnesses uh, from either the claimant uh, and the employer's witness, or there might be witnesses that the claimant may want to produce, right? And that's also another thing that we've seen where 
a claimant will produce coworkers or other witnesses on scene to testify to the benefit that the employer is supposedly receiving. That makes it even more important that we want to preserve the employer's witness correctly. Case law is very, very strong on this point, right? It's about knowing what the exceptions are and how we're going to prove them, right? A lot of times we talk about how the presumption uh, of compensability really puts the defense on, on, the, um, on, on a reactionary scale to kind of push back. So what I like to do is actually make those issues come to the forefront first, right? If we have our employer's witness and we tailor our cross-examination of the claimant to go right to the matter at hand, we're doing the job that we need to do without being asked to provide it. And I think that that provides a nice little emotional undertone to the, the nature of a trial. Uh, we're all humans. We're all human actors in this little uh, um, game. And it's very important to make sure that we're being concise and we're being direct. Uh, being on the defensive, especially in New York workers' compensation, can lead to a result that you weren't expecting. Okay, so uh, I hope you guys uh, learned a little bit about this one today. Uh, you know, I don't have a, a partner to discuss any feedback about this case. And, and really, it's because the issue is straightforward, or maybe I'm losing more friends as the day goes by. Uh, but in reality, uh, it's, it is an important issue that we want to use whenever the, uh, the opportunity presents itself. But it's not straightforward enough that we can simply make the defense and hope the case wins out on the papers, right? There's still the procedural aspects of reporting, denying, preserving, and eliciting four actions needed for a fact-based witness in order to preserve and maintain a disallowance. You also know in this case that if the claimant were to lose after the facts come out of trial, they have nothing to lose by appealing further to the board panel. So you want to be ready with a summation brief uh, prior to a uh, decision at the law judge level and an appeal brief ready to go, or a rebuttal brief rather, uh, to rebut the claimant's claims to the board panel. So uh, for I, I usually would say for my guests, but it's really just me here. So for myself, um, uh, my name is Christian Cison, and I'm reminding you to defend from day one. Counter four. <laughs>